Let's pray one more time before we approach God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you that it's living and active, and we pray that as it goes out this morning, as it's read, as it's preached, we would find that it is living and active in our own hearts. We pray that where there is darkness, you would bring light. Where there is death, you would bring life. Where we are in need of comfort because there is pain, that you would bring it. That we would find that you are sustaining us by your word this morning. We pray all of this in the strong name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. This is a holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, we've mentioned these past few weeks that the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians that are being tempted to turn away from Christ and turn away from the Christian faith that they have grabbed a hold of and turn back to their Jewish faith because they're suffering persecution. And there's even greater persecution on the horizon as they're suffering martyrdom. And so they're being tempted to turn away from Christ. I wonder, Christian, what you do when you are being tempted. There are some of you in this room this morning who are being tempted, and no doubt you are here this morning because you think, ah, I'm going to give it one last try, show up to worship this morning, and we'll see if I get anything out of it. And if not, ah, put forth my best effort. There are others of you that, ah, you're here, but you're not really here. As you walk out, there's not a running away from Christ. There's just kind of a gradual kind of moving away from Christ over time. There's that temptation. You're tired, you're discouraged, you're depressed. You feel like you 
have faced all kinds of things, and you're being tempted. Tempted to give up. Tempted to stop seeking after him. What do you do when you're tempted? The psalmist was saying, Psalm 121, he'll say, I lift up my eyes to the hills. He's looking at the hills and he is tempted because he is fearful of what is in the hills. And he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills and from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He finds that he turns back to God in the midst of that temptation to flee from God. And the writer of Hebrews is going to echo that sentiment of the psalmist. He points the Christian back to Christ. He's saying, look, in the face of temptation, Jewish Christians, this is what you do. You look to Christ. And he's going to do it, as we're going to see this morning, in three ways. Three points this morning. Christ like us. Christ for us, and then Christ with us. Christ like us, Christ for us, Christ with us. So first, in the midst of temptation, when you are tempted to abandon Christ, to flee from Christ, you remember this first of all, Christ like us. Verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, it's emphatic, he himself, likewise partook of the same things. He'll say in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That is, the Son of God assumes human nature. There have been different heresies throughout the history of the church that have attempted to say in some manner or form that Jesus wasn't truly human. He, he maybe appeared to be human, or maybe he wasn't fully human. He didn't have a human mind. Or he didn't suffer bodily as humans suffer bodily. Because that is somehow negates the fact that he is deity, that he is God. And no, the, the writer is very clear. He partook of the same things, the writer says in verse 14. He had to be made like his brothers, he says in verse 17. There was no other way. Christ like us. If he was going to be Christ for us, he had to be Christ like us. Nothing lacking in him, truly human, like his brothers in every respect. Every respect. Remember first reading the early church fathers maybe 20, 25 years ago and in those first centuries, they kept coming across a, a similar illustration that different church fathers used over and over to speak about the incarnation. And they would use this illustration. They said it is like the Son of God becoming flesh. is like a, a mother that sees her child crying and in desperation and despair and she takes that child in her embrace, that crying child, and she brings that crying child to her breast, and she nurtures it and nourishes it. Said, so it is like Christ, the, the Son of God, becomes flesh, and he takes human flesh to himself. This weak, crying out flesh, and he takes it to himself, and he presses it into his embrace. 
But it's more than that. It's not just he, he takes it to himself. He takes it upon himself. He is like us. It is a great act of love that the Son of God would become flesh and adorn himself with flesh. And that great act of love happens so that there can even be a greater act of love. Christ like us leads to Christ for us. He died for us. And in dying for us, he delivered us. The writer of Hebrews is going to focus on two things. He delivered us from two particular problems. He delivered us from slavery, and he delivered us from wrath. Christ for us delivered us from slavery. He became like us of the same things, verse 14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to life long slavery. You were born into this world a slave. Now that may sound strange. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that all of us, all children of Adam and Eve, all of us born into this world are born in this world in slavery. We are slaves of what? Of the fear of death. We all fear death. All slaves of it. As John Owen, the 17th century theologian, rightfully said, this is an involuntary slavery. No one is in slavery because he wants to be, which means that there is a strong desire to seek freedom in any way you can. And you can see this throughout our society. There is this constant kind of pressure and orchestrating of things so that we can distance ourselves as much as we can from having any conscious conscious thought of death. We work overtime to distance ourselves from death. This is part of the reason that I think COVID had such an incredible impact upon everyone and everything. This is why medicine has been given such a place of prominence in our society. Everyone wants to beat death or at least keep it at bay. We're obsessed with death. We just call it something nicer. We call it health. Obsessed with health. To prevent death. Exercise, the drug industry, supplements have taken entire sectors of our economy. Plastic surgery and Botox are hobbies for the rich. Why? Because they don't want to look in that mirror and see reflected back to them that death is encroaching. When Leah and I lived in Dallas, she taught at a private school taught kindergarten and it was a school that was in the very wealthy part of Dallas and this isn't just wealthy this is Dallas wealthy and she taught kindergarten one day she was teaching on time and the principles of time and she had a clock and she was showing the kindergartners what 15 minutes looks like and she was saying that 15 minutes is a pretty long period of time and there was a little girl that raised her hand and and Leah called on her and the little girl said, 15 minutes is not very long. And Leah said, well, why do you say that? And she said, 
15 minutes isn't long because I've sat a whole hour in the doctor's office while my mommy got shots in her face. That's a long time. We didn't ever look at that woman the same way again. But what I love is that it was in a lesson on time. Trying to keep time at bay. It just keeps marching on. And death is coming. And death is feared, rightfully so, because death destroys. But the writer of Hebrews says, verse 14, Jesus destroys him who has the power of death. That's Christ for us. Who has the power of death? It's the devil. And how does Jesus destroy the devil who has the power of death? By his own atoning death. Now let's try and make... A little bit of sense of this. How does the devil have the power of death? It is not that he dictates who dies. He has no power over who. Neither does he have the power in that he decides when someone dies. He doesn't have the power of when. Nor does he have the power of where someone dies. Then what does the writer mean that the devil has the power of death and that he that he exercises this power. Well, he has the power of death in this and that he introduced death into the world. He did that by bringing temptation into the world. Someone asked me last week after the sermon and I was standing out here, they said, why does the devil want to tempt people? Why does he want us to sin? And it's because he is committed to a life of cosmic rebellion and he wants to drag all he can to hell with him. When Lucifer rebelled in heaven as an angel and he was cast out of heaven with all the rest of the fallen angels, he desires now to bring all of those that he can created in the image of God with him down to hell because he is just in a constant state of cosmic rebellion. The devil is, Jesus says in John 12, the prince or the ruler of this world. Paul calls him in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. He calls him the a little g God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. He has power in the sense that he brought sin into this world. And now this is a sinful and sin-filled, sin-fatigued world. And the penalty for sin is death. That is Satan's power. Sin must be punished with death. That's the penalty. There's an obligation here. And so every man, woman, and child, no matter how much they may seek to suppress it, there is a fear of death, rightfully so. That fear is what we are in slavery to. And the devil is the master. But the penalty of death, if the penalty of death is taken away, that obligation is fulfilled, and the devil no longer has power. And this is what Christ, like us, does for us. 
He takes the penalty for our sin. He dies in our place so that death no longer is required. The obligation has been fulfilled so the devil no longer has any power over the one for whom Christ died. His power is, as John Owen will say, dissolved. It disappears, or as a writer of Hebrews says here, it's destroyed. This is why the New Testament, over and over, have you noticed this? As the New Testament writers are writing, when they speak about a Christian dying, they don't say that he died. They say he fell asleep. Death no longer has power in the Christian's life. And so Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus there in Luke 11 will say, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Acts 7, when Stephen is being stoned, that first martyr of the church, we are told falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We could go to passage after passage. Especially that 1 Thessalonians 4 though. We often use to comfort one another when we're grieving the passing of a loved one. Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So that Paul can get to the point in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. The sting of death is gone. It's gone for the Christian. Why? Because as Paul says, God gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The devil is defeated and we are delivered from death by Christ who is for us. Christ for us delivers from slavery and he also delivers us from wrath. Verse 17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Read a post this week from a theologian, the denomination that URC used to belong to that about sent me into apoplectic shock. He said this, he said the two most toxic traits attributed to God are sovereignty and holiness. They are destructive. And you can make a great case for the cross as a total repudiation of those traits, but you can also just look around and realize that they are incompatible with love. This is the worst false teaching. The worst kind. That's an abomination. He was made like his brothers to make 
propitiation for the sins of the people. God's holiness and God's sovereignty are not offenses, but they are beautiful comforts. Listen, an unholy God cannot be a God of love. It's an impossibility. Does this man really want an unholy God, one that dabbles in wickedness, that dabbles in evil, that dabbles in false things? Holiness is beautiful, and sovereignty is beautiful. If God is not sovereign, he's not God. If he's not a sovereign God, then we have no hope of salvation because there can be something that outflanks him. There can be something that just can trump him in any given moment, something that can undermine him. Oh, God the Father and God the Son can plan an eternity past for God the Son to come into the world and die for sinners because he's sovereign. He can be our help. And he actually is our help. Does this man not understand? Does he not understand what motivated the Father to send the Son into the world to uphold holiness and justice in his sovereignty? Does he not understand that what caused him to send the Son into the world was actually love? Son dies on the cross, a propitiating sacrifice for us, motivated by the love of the Father and the Son for us to uphold holiness according to his sovereignty. He propitiates the Father on our behalf. The Son propitiates the holy, righteous, sovereign Father on our behalf. It's a big word. It's a word that we don't normally use. Propitiation to propitiate means to deal with someone's anger. And notice it's anger. It's not hatred we're speaking of. Too often propitiation is described as turning the the Father's wrath into love. No, 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 no. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. The father's love is not caused by the death of Christ. The death of Christ was caused by the love of the father. As John will say, in this we know love. In this is love. Not that we first loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for us. Holiness and the sovereignty of God makes a path for the beauty of the cross. God sent God. Another way of saying this, the cross did not lead to the Father's love for us. Rather, the Father's love led to the cross of Christ for us. God propitiates himself out of love. Hold his holiness and justice. And it could only be done by a sovereign God. Donald MacLeod, the theologian, said, he said, God provided his own lamb. 
And though the great ritual takes place at Calvary, involves a human sacrifice, the blood shed is God's own, and the whole transaction is one which takes place between divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mankind does not placate an angry deity, but God justifies his own remission of human sin. God is angry with sin. You want a God who is angry with sin. And there is a need for him to be propitiated. He's holy. You want him to be holy. This is not an antiquated view of deity. It's the God of the Bible. Cloud says this. He said, God is angry with our defiances, our blasphemies and idolatries. Angry with the way we treat our neighbors. Angry with the way we treat the poor, the alien and the marginalized. Angry with the way we treat our enemies. Far from ignoring or indulging such lovelessness, God deplores it. And this is no irrational, evanescent, or intemperate fury. It is the deliberate, measured, judicious response of God to our collective revolt against his rule. In God's eyes, the earth is filled with violence, and it appalls him. It would be our wisdom to propitiate God. But we have nothing to offer nothing to offer. This is why God the Son had to become man, had to be like us to atone for our sins so that he could be Christ for us. He became flesh in order to give his life as a ransom. He could only make peace by the blood of his cross. God pays the penalty with his own blood. Christ like us, Christ for us. Finally, as he tries to show us that we have every help in Christ, he's saying, look, oh, I understand things are hard. I understand you are going through trials. I understand the great temptation to turn away from Christ. You think you are abandoned. You think you're forgotten. Remember this, Christ became like you. The Son of God became like you. This is Christ like you. This is Christ for you. He set you free from your great adversary, death. He set you free from the very wrath of God. Christ like you, Christ for you. Now let me remind you, though, that's not all. You also have Christ with you. Christ is with you now. He is, the writer says, a merciful and faithful high priest. Merciful and faithful. This is, this is twin blessings here. He is like us and for us, and so we have a high priest who has a heart of tender compassion towards his people. He's merciful. He's willing. He's also faithful 
This is not a reference to his faith-filled life before the Father. That is, of course, true that he forever walked in righteousness before his Father, but that's not what the writer of Hebrews is speaking about here. Rather, he's speaking about him being faithful in that there is a deliberateness about Christ. There is an intention on his part. Christ with us is careful, and he is intent in his concern for us. He's not only willing for us, but he is also able in serving us. He's saying, look, in the midst of all your trials, in the midst of all of these temptations, you have, in the midst of all of this, you have these two great promises. He is merciful and he is faithful. He is willing and he is able. You can rest your weary soul upon this soft pillow. Two soft pillows you got. He's merciful and faithful. So often, your accusations launched against God as if he doesn't care. He doesn't know. He doesn't understand. And here it's being pressed home. Part of the beauty The incarnation is that forever that argument's taken away. Christ with us understands. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He experienced this life and he experienced the temptations that it brings. He experienced it. He suffered through temptation. Think about Christ and think about his temptation in life to abandon his father. There is this constant temptation and all that our adversary could bring to bear. All that the devil and all the demons that could bring, they could bring to bear and all that the world could bring to bear on Christ to try and turn him away from his father, just this continual assault upon him. Just tempted and tempted and tempted again. Peter will, attempt him, will tempt him to avoid the cross. The devil will tempt him to seize the kingdom by other means. His family will tempt him to abandon his course. He faces temptation after temptation, and because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You're tempted to wander away from God. See, Christ has been tempted in every way. He suffered when being tempted, and so he's able to help, the writer of Hebrews is saying. You have one who understands, one who has experienced. He not only forgives sin, but he gives us the power to resist sin. Remember, he's trying to comfort these Jewish Christians who, and it just feels like all of life has started to fall apart since they followed Christ. He's just trying to encourage them. What what does he encourage them? He's just encouraging them, look, keep looking to Jesus. You keep looking to Jesus. I think, well, it's all well and good. 
Jesus was tempted and tried, but he hasn't faced what I face. He hasn't been tempted to abandon God because he hasn't been through what I've been through. He didn't have a spouse that is beating him. No, not in one sense. He didn't ever have earthly children that he watched just go off a, off a cliff's edge and destroy their lives. No, he didn't in one sense. He's been tempted in every way. More severe temptations than you and I have experienced. He understands. He's merciful and faithful. How were his temptations more severe? I'll give you three particular ways this morning. First, his temptation was more severe in that he has only known holiness and righteousness and goodness. And so when evil approached him to entice him, it was starker and it was more offensive than anything that we have endured. Second, the power of Christ's tempter was surely more than the power of yours and my tempter. He was tempted personally by the devil. You and I, frankly, are not that important. The devil is a personal being. He can only be in one place at one time. And I doubt any of us have risen to the level where the devil has personally tempted any of us in this room. But Jesus has the continual onslaught of the power of the devil. Third, the severity was greater in his temptations, because he never gave in. You and I give in to temptation, and so there's relief. We get relief. The way I think about it in the life of Jesus is it's like a rubber band. If you, if you pull a rubber band out, and you have all of this tension in the rubber band, and, and you just continue to hold it out, how do you eventually, what eventually happens? Well, you, you, you give in to that temptation, and it snaps back, and there's rest. He never gave in. Just continual onslaught of temptation after temptation. Just this continual stress. He never experienced rest. Never had relief. An old Testament commentator said about this truth, he said, sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. He never yielded before the last strain. Just this continual onslaught of temptation from without. He knows weakness. He knows the allure of sin. He 
knows the trials of this life. He knows the misery of this world. He knows. He experienced it. He is like you. And that experience makes him a compassionate and gracious and sympathetic Christ who is with you. We've all had those moments where you're something big is before you. Maybe you have to go into this building that you don't want to go into to do something. Or to get in front of this microphone to say something. Or there is this person that you have to approach and say a hard thing to. Or, or something that you just desperately love and you know you have to let go of this thing. And there is that person that is standing next to you, maybe it's your husband or wife or mother or father or it is a friend and you have this thought, if not at least uttered it. I can do this if you're with me. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying to you is Christ is with you. Being tempted on every side can do this. Keep looking to Christ. He's with you. So often complain against God. He does not know. If he does know, clearly he doesn't care. If he knew and cared, he would. Do you see Christ like us? Christ for us, Christ with us, closes every single mouth from such an accusation. And then it takes those everlasting arms and wraps them around that person. So when you're weak, look to him. When you're reeling, look to him. When you can't seem to overcome the temptation that is before you, then you look to him. He's our help. He's your constant and continual help. He truly gives us all we need in the midst of whatever we find ourselves in. Let's close with this. In 1871, there was a, a fire that swept across uh, the best city on the face of the earth. This was even before they invented deep dish pizza, Chicago, and destroyed 3.3 miles of square miles of the city. Destroyed 17,000 buildings in the city. There was a lawyer in that city, Horatio Spafford, who had invested his earthly wealth in buildings on the north side of the city, and he lost all of that investment. It wasn't all that he lost, though. There were about 300 people that died in the great Chicago fire, and one of those 300 was his four-year-old son. 
After about two years, Spafford, trying to recover from this loss, decided with his wife and his four surviving children, all daughters, that they would go to England and go on a tour together, go on vacation. And they were going because D.L. Moody was a personal friend of Spafford's, and D.L. Moody was doing a preaching tour in England. And so they were going to enjoy vacation and also catch some good preaching while they were there. And so the day came, but Spafford, because of some business obligations, decided that he had to remain back. And so he put his wife and his four daughters on the ship and he said that he would follow in a couple of days or a week later when the next ship was crossing the Atlantic and he would join them in England so that ship left, and as it was crossing the huge Atlantic Ocean, how this even happens, in the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean, I don't understand. The ship that his wife and his daughters were on ran into an iron ship. His wife was rescued and was taken to England, and she sent a telegram to him just with two words. Saved alone. four daughters, ages 12, 7, 4, and 18 months, all died. Spafford booked the next ship out of the U.S. to go and gather his grieving wife from England. And as he is on this ship crossing the Atlantic Ocean, when he gets near where his four daughters lost their life, he wrote a hymn. You know the opening verse. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You have that background in mind. The sea billows at him make quite a different impact, don't they? Continued. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. It is well. It is well with my soul. Christian can say this today, no matter the trials and temptations. Can say it tomorrow, can say it for all of eternity. Because we have Christ like us, for us, with us, ever. It's well with our soul. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are a sovereign, holy God who sent your Son Propitiate 
the wrath of you, our holy God, we might have peace and everlasting life with you. We're thankful, Christ, who would become like us. Christ, who would defeat our adversary for us. And Christ, who even now serves as our high priest forever dwelling with us. Truly, may it be the song of our hearts and our lives that it is well with us. No matter what temptations we face, it is well with us. Help us to keep looking to you in the face of your Son. We seek after him always. It is in the strong name of Christ that we pray. Amen.